Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Linsenmeyer. My guest for episode 161 is Chuck Prophet. In 1985, he joined Green on Red as their guitarist, playing on six albums and some EPs with them. He's had 15 solo albums since 1990. You're right now listening to perhaps his biggest hit, Summertime Thing, from No Other Love 2002, which would be his seventh solo album. We're going to talk about Womankind from The Land That Time Forgot. It's a 2020 album that's being re-released with some bonus tracks right now. Then Your Skin from 2017's Bobby Fuller Died for Your Sins, and Castro Halloween from Temple Beautiful 2012, that we're actually going to hear the longer single version from 2013. And we'll close by listening to Wish Me Luck from Night Surfer 2014. For more information, please see ChuckProfit.com. For more about this podcast, see NakedlyExaminedMusic.com. And to support the effort, go to Patreon.com slash NakedlyExaminedMusic. I'd also like to request that if you enjoy this, go leave us a nice five-star rating and review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. So I'll have played a little bit of Summertime Thing from No Other Love 2002 as the thing that Spotify is telling me is your most famous song. But that is like an early hit. But given that you weren't the singer-songwriter in Green on Red, and, you know, it seems like you've morphed into a new thing, you know, as a grown-up songwriter, post-90s. Can you say a little about, before we get very quickly into a tune from the most recent album, about this lengthy journey of emerging as, you know, now I'm a singer-songwriter in, you know, 1990, your first solo album, but then, you know, you've definitely, while that was kind of a little more straight ahead country or Rolling Stones stuff, but you know, you've definitely emerged with your own unique sound over the years here. Any sort of comments on, on your approach as compared to where you started here? Well, I've been playing in bands probably since I was about 12. And when punk rock came along, as my friend Alejandro Escovito likes to say, it really erased the line between the audience and the stage. And so I remember seeing some early punk rock shows, and although I had played guitar and garage bands, and we played covers and whatever, I didn't know anybody that you know had made a record. I didn't know anybody that had done any of those things. But I think punk rock made it all possible. So you know, initially I would just be with my friends, and we would just make up stuff. We didn't really consider ourselves songwriters or singer songwriters. You know, I think the singer songwriter thing came from. Chris Christopherson and this movement in the late 60s towards authenticity. Like, well, instead of hearing the woman that had the hit with that particular Chris Christopherson song, you know, you could actually hear Chris Christopherson do it. You might like it, you know. So I don't know. That, I think that's, I don't know much about where that singer-songwriter thing came in. I was always in bands and we were always trying to make up songs and we were always trying to make up songs as good as our heroes. And so... You know, I joined a band called Green on Red. I was probably about 20 when I joined them. You know, the front man was Dan Stewart, a guy that had some really big ideas that made an impression on me right away. I joined the group. They already had songs like Brave Generation, which was a song about 
our generation as opposed to the beat generation or the hip generation were the brave. And I thought like that was pretty audacious stuff. And so I ended up playing in Green on Red and, and Danny and I got to a place where we could write songs together sitting in a room. And I think we probably made like 10 records if you include the greatest hits and the live record in there. So that band kind of hit the wall. I mean, we hit the wall in the sense that you know we kind of hit the wall up against our limitations, really. After making that many records, I think we'd done everything we set out to do in many ways. And so I was back in San Francisco and I started playing with some friends of mine and we started doing a lot of acoustic music. And at the time, that was pretty unusual. At the time, people were mostly emulating like the replacements. That was kind of the template. And for good reason. But from there, I guess I became a singer-songwriter by default. Because I figured at a certain point you had to go solo, you know, if you were in a band. That's what you did. That's what my heroes did. And I didn't really think I was going to go out and form another band, you know, with my college roommates or whatever. So I started making these records. And somewhere along the line, I did end up in Nashville for a while, doing a lot of co-writing on Music Row. And that was cool because I really didn't have anything going on. I, I was having a hard time making a living. You know, I made a few records that didn't really connect in a massive way. And so uh, I thought, well, maybe I'll do this. And, I, and, and one of the things that I learned the time that I was in Nashville is that although I didn't really know anything about country music, I'd spent a lot of time in garages trying to figure out how to put things together. And I've been doing that, like I said, since I was 12 years old. So oftentimes that's really what songwriting is. You know, somebody has something and they don't know how to put it together with another thing and you want to get to kind of lift up in this place or that. So that that's, you know, how I ended up making Chuck Prophet records and being this singer-songwriter guy, I guess. Plus, I like playing. All right. And so 15 solo albums in, we're now to uh, The Land the Time Forgot is the current one which I understand you're re-releasing probably by the time this comes out with some extra tracks. I had picked this tune, Womankind. Can you say a little about sort of where you're at with this record and that song before we hear it? Well, I co-wrote most of this record uh, with my friend Kurt, and this is one of the rare songs where I really had the idea and I had the title. Thematically, I don't think it's any secret that we live in a time where Women are pretty superior in so many ways. You know, even in in the business world, all the best managers are women. Women are more suited to collaboration. They hold more college degrees. And I know there was a time when if you were a big, strong man and you could lift things down at the docks, that was useful. And you might be like the character out of a John Bon Jovi song. And you could come home and say, dinner better be on the table or else, you know. But we got forklifts now. And, (laughs) you know, like... All I can say is that as for men, you know, we've had a good run. And I think that's what this song is really about. It's it's also a kind of song that I've probably written a few times. And that is where it's a song about women and God, really, like in an interchangeable way. Fist. 
So big sort of almost pompous, boom, boom, you know, you got timpani in here right from the start. We're going to have a parade here to start off. Why this flair for this theme? I just wanted to find the right arrangement for it, you know, and I did kick some different arrangements around. And I kind of like this upright bass. Dong, dong, um, yeah. Uh, what I consider almost like a um, wrecking crew kind of a arrangement. And I wanted this record to really be driven by the acoustics, you know. And I, I remember talking to Glenn Dicker, the president of Yep Rock, and I was saying I wanted to make a more acoustic record. And he was like, oh, that's cool. I said, you know, like Beggar's Banquet. <laughs> and so I finally figured out that when it comes to acoustic music, I like acoustic music that has a rhythm section. I love Street Fighting Man and I love Maggie Mae. And that's probably why this song 
rocks as hard as it does. I like something moving under its feet. So we got three distinct sections here as far as the feel that you've got that initial intro that sets up the funny lyrics, your examples of man's great creations, the blow up doll and the iron fist. And then we got you know this kind of flowing, we're introducing the feminine kind of thing. But then the chorus, if you take it literally, this meet me down at the power lines, like I assume you shouldn't take it literally because it sounds like it could be a Bon Jovi kind of connoting we're outside in industrial times or something, which doesn't seem to have much to do with what came before. Can you say something about sort of that progression in the song? I like that change up pitch with a chorus. You know, I probably have done that uh, a few times. I mean, I co-wrote this. I should give Kurt the credit for the blow up doll line for sure. But he and I stalled out and meet me down at the riverside and I just couldn't do it, you know. <laughs> I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't do Riverside, you know, and I, I was lucky enough that the paint was still wet and I just kept playing the song, you know, until Power Lines came out and then I, I didn't have to think about it. I just liked it and I moved on. Okay. It was only sort of looking at it on the paper that, and you're describing this is about power relations between men and women. Is that even like an intentional? I mean, obviously, you got to use both sides of your brain, you know, and there's a lot of content <laughs> poured into the song from the parking lot to the pork pie hat to the uh, all the content that's in there. But there's also just kind of a subconscious part where you just sing things at the walls. And if you like what you hear bouncing back at you, you keep it. You could equate it to honking your horn in a tunnel. You know, sometimes I always wanted my dad to honk his horn in the tunnel. I just like the way it sounded, you know. So I like the way it sounded and I like the way it feels spitting it out. Well, and you've got that prominent... Whoa, whoa, whoa. It connotes 50s, 60s? I don't know. Was that sort of with the Wrecking Crew sensibility? Like, You know, I'm in a group, and so I always think of it as like a play Mm -hmm. in the sense that like, whenever I write a song or whenever I make a record out of it, I do kind of close my eyes and picture a band on stage, and I think of it as a play like that. Like, I wouldn't want to leave somebody out. So Stephanie and I have been singing for so long that it was really cool that we came up with some background vocals that sort of toggled back and forth and, and kept that energy. So the song's always giving you something, you know, mm-hmm. as opposed to just straight up harmony singing, you know, which is where you're singing close harmony and not in unison notes. But I love when background vocals toggle off back and forth off the vocal when, when they call and respond. I guess that's the word for it. Under that, you have this acoustic guitar, like the acoustic becomes the lead, playing that line along with them, you know, in a way that for a lot of the song, it's just strumming in the background. But then you introduce it in a couple places, maybe sort of to prepare for that eventual solo, which you would think with a tune that's this bombastic, that having like a big fat electric would be the natural thing to come up. But no, this is an acoustic song, as you say. So let's even make the solo based around the acoustic well the acoustic it did poke out and uh, if i recall it's upright bass and the side stick and there was space in there is there a 12 string in there somewhere 12 string electric like at least it sounds like it or else there's just octaver maybe it's possible i'd have to ask james depredo can you say a little about sort of your modus in just putting the arrangement together because this is nicely layered it's not overly thick but it's got at least three guitars in it it basically started with two chords like so many of my songs i can go from a one chord to a four chord i can do that all day i never get bored and you know it started just going from d to g i think 
but then I was able to get that flat five. You're a musician, right? Yes, I play lots of instruments. I've released like a dozen albums, yeah. I had the major seven thing, like... Right? Mm-hmm. But then when you do that over the four chord, you get... I just really liked that and it gave me enough to hang my hat on and I thought well that's original and it's taking me somewhere and that's kind of where it started and then I just kept pushing the idea down the road yeah let me uh, play a little of the bridge you be the twilight I'll be the dawn I'll bring the ball and chain So now that you say Wrecking Crew, I can totally, like, how can we really amp up the lushness? I mean, is there like a harpsichord something there? Might be a clavinet, actually. I closed my eyes. I could see the the clavinet there at uh, Old Soul Studios. And that's David. Oh, sweet guy playing keyboards. So so great. I can't remember his name. On that particular track, he does play a piano. He plays an arp. And he does play a harpsichord. Ah. (laughs) Very good. All right, and then you got the strings as well. I assume synth strings, just to... That's right, yeah, exactly. How specific are you being in communicating with somebody like David, you know, in terms of it's just do something there, or is it like you've got pretty much the exact piano lines in your head as it's going? No, no, in fact, no, I mean, I can be pretty bossy, you know, but I do want to credit, when we got to the bridge, we were like... And then that line, he augmented it a little bit and kind of went out of scale with it. He said, I don't know if this is okay. It's a little bebop. And I said, no, I like it. So, so yeah, I got to credit him with that. With It got a little modal there. It just kind of went out of the skippity-doo-dah for a minute. And then let's play a little of this solos right after that. You're answering it with the electric? Is that what's going on? So you're playing the main riff on acoustic and then there's like an electric that is underneath it that is answering it? Or is that just something in engineering that is it's just acoustic throughout and it just has stuff layered on it? I wasn't really sure. No, I think that's one guitar. That, oh, okay. That solo uh, is one guitar. I played it. I don't think I play it live. I give all that stuff to my guitar player, James, who's way more capable than me. I'll say that's the one thing that really surprised me when I saw you live here in Madison a couple of years ago is I'd been listening, you know, I had heard the Green on Red stuff was going to your solo stuff. And, you know, your presence in Green on Red is these super, super tasty guitar licks. So I was sort of expecting like, you know, I was hearing all these lead parts as having come from you. And that's it. No, no, no. You actually had the modesty, even though you were like the guitar guy to outsource like no no no, i'm doing enough on stage let me get somebody else to that's pretty rare you know (laughs) for somebody to just say that's fine i don't have to be the lead player on most of the stuff well it's like i tell my band like you know i don't necessarily want to play loud guys so we could get the stage volume down and when i say i don't want to play loud what i mean is i still want to be the loudest Because that allows me sort of the power steering where I can sort of like walk up to a note and I know that everybody's going to hear me and I'm still kind of leading the band, but um, I'm 
blessed to be surrounded by great musicians. Well, let's get the second song out there, Your Skin, from the previous album. Do you have a couple words to say about where you were at with that album and this song? Well, that's off the Bobby Fuller Died for Your Sins record. Yep, 2017. It really started probably with about three or four songs that formed some kind of a theme. And from there, I started to have an idea how to cast the movie. And so I really wanted the record to be, um, you know, kind of guitars and drums. We all played live on the floor together, and that was important to me. And there's also a kind of an early 60s vintage to the record, just trying to find the right grooves for the songs. Well, and that nice old fuzz guitar sound that is very prominent on this one. It might, it might have been a tone bender or something like that. No, I think it's a Rano. A Rano bender, which is, a, I think, a guy in France that remakes the tone benders that Mick Ronson was so famous for using. Joseph Arthur turned me on to that guy, and I got one. That's the fuzz that you hear.
Yeah, so nice layers to this because it's also, it's acoustic start, but then to have acoustic and fuzz over it and be able to bring that in and out. And really the thing that attracted me to the, you know, this song in particular is that descending guitar thing during the chorus. Don't want to take you over. I want to crawl inside your skin. That just makes it totally ethereal. It just makes it very much not a, you might think this is a Rolling Stone song or something when it starts, but that riff, that gesture to me takes it somewhere vaguely psychedelic. I don't know. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, and definitely got a little modal with all the the solos and stuff. I think James and I trade solos back and forth really fast. And I always like the handoffs, you know, I think they're kind of exciting. Well, and you're handing off and your solo sound is, I think, if you're the one going first, is super reverbed. (laughs) It's like, it's not sort of your normal left, right, both sort of front stage, you know, definitely like you're playing the psychedelic role or whatever by having the big coursey reverb sound, whatever, and then let the other guitar do the more traditional blues thing, I guess. No, James is playing the 12 string that's got a lot of reverb on it, and I'm playing the one in the right speaker. Yeah, I guess this has a definite, like, birds eight miles high, that era of the 1972 or whatever live thing with Clarence White, where they would do the trading off guitars and, like, make the song 25 minutes long, whatever. I can dig that, yeah. I guess that's what this big, giant 12-string lick before the you're going to need some protection baby is sort of what that's suggesting. Do you have any memory of sort of how you put this one together, what you were thinking here? It was really like kind of a one-chord song and some lines, and I knew that it would be injected with that flavor. And a lot of psychedelic music has been in the air lately, so... I mean, this record's five years old now, but I think there was a lot of that in the air. And I knew I was going to inject it with that, but I didn't plan it that much. In fact, I think we're all also, I think it's kind of unique because we're soloing over one chord, which can be fun and it can also be kind of challenging. Well, and you kept this one under control, right? This is only less than three and a half minutes long, that this could very easily be something that you, like I was just describing, like... That's a different thing live, for sure. I mean, I get a lot of heat about that. People always want more guitar on the records. And I mean, you know, my idea of a guitar player is J.J. Kale. And I think his first record's like 27 minutes long or something. And all the songs are under three minutes. So that's just the way it is. You know, that's just the way I make records and I play gigs. And they're kind of two different things. So is this, you're going to need some protection, baby. I mean, is this whole thing as like a seduction song in terms of like get the condom is that the idea or is it like there's a sense of danger here kind of like oh you're gonna need some protection from the sun okay. you know okay i see <laughs> more innocent than the previous verses would suggest let's say yeah <laughs> kind of makes me wonder what you're hiding in that coat it's not the way you move your hips it's not the clothes you wear you know just this suggestive that you can have this i don't know if there's a lot of sort of psychedelic music like that you know it's like floating moonbeams or whatever and you've got moon on the water you've got uh, some of that stuff here but it's definitely you know a sensual it's about skin so it's got to have some it's really about you know a woman can be more attractive by what she's not showing you and the mystery (laughs) well what's the distinction don't want i mean if this is tedious dissecting the individual lines that's all right i mean i i feel like i'm on the couch you know i I actually am on the couch I actually am on a couch right now, so... <laughs> so what's the distinction? Don't want to take you over. I just want to crawl inside, as if crawling inside was not more... <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know. I just think it's kind of the job of a bridge to give you a different perspective, I, I guess. Any further thoughts on your choice in, like, how over-the-top 
to go that you've got some like wood block reverb percussion stuff here. You've got some, I don't know, wind noises or something on that. The wood blocks just kind of emphasize that Latin beat. Mm-hmm. And there was definitely space for them. And it gives a hard edge, gives some shape to the track. It becomes a little more graphic. Got these psychedelic elements, but, you know, sort of the prototypical psychedelic song is also probably slower. You know, I just watched a Velvet Underground documentary <laughs> like that. The beat is in no particular place. But the fact that, you know, this is driving, this has got a solid rock and roll bass to it. It suggests something else. Could you say anything else about sort of what your model for this, what sort of you had in mind? Was it just that old Stones thing? It's been a long time since I soaked up all the hundreds of also-ran bands that were collected <laughs> on the Nuggets collections. But when I was a teenager, when I was in high school, I used to go see this band, the Psychotic Pineapple. And, you know, I thought that they wrote You're Gonna Miss Me, uh, which later I learned was the 13th Floor Elevators. And I thought they wrote those, you know, she's a, they used to do a lot of Sonics covers. And I thought those were their songs, you know, and I learned later, like, no, no, there's a thing. It's called Nuggets. And, you know, <laughs> it's a collection of bands from the 60s that made these one-off singles. So I think that's also part of what informed this. It wasn't Quicksilver Messenger Service, who I saw. I mean, I used to see John Cipollina play in North Beach, and they would do Mona for the last song. And that was like... That was like a half an hour. I would always wait until like 1.30 in the morning, and then you could just walk into the club. At that point, the door person was gone, and they weren't collecting money anymore, and you could just walk in, and I could see John Cipollina with Nick Ravenides. They'd do like Mona. I swear it'd be like a half an hour long. I mean, I'd be like a whole show. So, (laughs) you know, there's a lot of ways to go about, I guess, psychedelic music, you know. Yeah, and taming that, there's always the thing that people latch on to. There's a reason that some of this at least got on the radio at some point, that you have to have something that is distillable and is not necessarily the excess that is like the true appeal if you're really high, I guess. <laughs> you know, if you're... I think you asked me earlier about that synth noise, which I think may have been generated by guitar. Mm. I don't recall exactly, but I just think in terms of the painting, you know, it was nice to have some straight lines, Nice to have some squiggly lines, but also nice to have some complete abstract stuff that makes no sense at all. Just the right amount of it. And that's what makes it a record, in my mind. That makes a lot of sense that you're pretty involved in the production angle. I mean, I also have a very much, I don't know, picturing the stereo space and looking at the song as like a 3D painting or something, you know, just really thinking about it visually. And we need to get a little higher on the sides or something, you know, (laughs) these things. And a little darker purple there. Like, Interestingly, I've worked with some great engineers, and sometimes, you know, they'll bring up a fader that has something you think is totally inconsequential, and to their mind, you know, they can pan it over here, and it's just the right, sonically, it's, it's giving the right information that they're looking for. And as a musician, you know, you tend to arrange things musically, how things work harmonically and how they stack up. So it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, what, exactly what you're saying. That's also part of the record-making process. How involved are you in the mixing, typically? It depends. Hopefully a lot of the choices are made when you're tracking. Mm-hmm. And hopefully you're not leaving too many of those decisions to the mixing engineer. I don't have to be there for all of it. Uh, sometimes I'm just a cheerleader, like, hey, keep doing what you're doing. Well, if they're going to just spend two hours like tweaking where the kick drum hits are, like, Please do that without me. I don't I don't want to be there for that. But as far as like the general furniture of like 
where are the guitars going to be in the mix and how big is this thing that comes in, you know, for the bridge? I'll let them do their thing and then I'll let them get invested in it. And it's definitely a collaborative process. So you can jump in afterward. Uh, I'm working with some great guys. I, I believe that was Paul Q. Coldery who mixed that track. And I think I remember mixing it and tracking some stuff together at the same time. Uh, he still mixes on a console and, you know, he likes to mix pretty loud. And I enjoy being in the room with him. Let's stop for some ads. In I Am Mine, the latest edition of Audible's Words and Music series, Eddie Vedder reflects on a life at the intersection of art, sensitivity, and masculinity. The musician, frontman for Pearl Jam, is one of the best-selling artists of all time and an inductee in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And he shares his incredible success story, which began when he decided to break from a Southern California routine for a day and head to Seattle to join a group of friends putting a band together. The exclusive audio experience includes new recordings and intimate performances of some of Vetter's most personal songs. Hear the Pearl Jam frontman and rock luminary like never before at audible.com slash Vetter. I want to introduce you to the Nebbia by Moen Quattro Showerhead by Nebbia. The company is backed by some of the biggest names in Silicon Valley, including Tim Cook. This is cutting-edge shower technology designed by former Tesla, NASA, and Apple engineers who spent years researching and developing a superior shower experience that saves water. I've talked on this podcast a lot in the past about their Nebbia by Moen Spa Shower. Well, the Quattro is their most affordable shower yet. It's the world's best high-pressure water-saving shower. It starts just $119. It has got four settings. I use multiple ones each shower. I like the soft spray, the signature spa-like feeling is drenchy and misty. You can put your face right up in it and the whole thing just envelops the space. But then finish off with the hard spray. And I got the kind that has the hose and just used it to watch my dog. There's a special super saver setting that is ideal for pets or washing your baby, maybe. The new model also features the brand's easiest installation yet, a three-minute process. It's as easy as changing a light bulb. I have taken it off, put it back on, take it off, put it back on. Check it out. Quattro allows you to save water without compromising on experience. Each mode saves 40 to 50% of water compared to a traditional shower. And they've got sustainable bathroom accessories such as their new quick dry earth mat, which they sent me and is awesome. Shower shells, shower curtains, hooks, bath mats, and more. So you could easily upgrade your bathroom. Nebbia by Moen Quattro starts at just $119 exclusively on Nebbia.com. And Nebbia just gave us a special discount for our community. Go to Nebbia.com slash N-E-M. Use code N-E-M at checkout to get 10% off all Nebbia products. Even better, Nebbia is offering free shipping on Quattro orders in the U.S. for just a few more days. So there's a great deal to jump on. Again, go to Nebbia.com slash N-E-M. That's N-E-B-I-A dot com slash N-E-M to check out what they have to offer and save 10% with the code N-E-M. Finally, Masterclass where you can learn from the world's best minds anytime, anywhere at your own pace. It is beautiful video lectures, though you can listen to them as audio. You can speed it up, slow it down, use the supplementary materials they provide with every course. These are major celebrities, people too famous to be on this podcast. You could learn scientific communication and thinking from Neil deGrasse Tyson, philosophy from Cornell West, storytelling and humor from David Sedaris, leadership from President Bill Clinton, and President George Bush, their classes about food, about design and style, sports and gaming, home and lifestyle, all sorts of creative endeavors, including over a dozen music classes, including the latest Ringo Starr teaches drumming and collaboration. If you have watched any of the Get Back Beatles documentary recently, you realize Ringo is a way better drummer than you thought. 
and is a model of collaboration, communication. Just a great guy to be around. Don't you want to be a great guy to be around in your band? Maybe you want to check this out. This holiday, give one annual membership and get one free. Go to masterclass.com slash examined today. That's masterclass.com slash examined. Terms apply. Let's go back a few more years. Castro Halloween, the second track off of Temple Beautiful 2012, except... As I was putting this together, I realized that there's a long version on the single. So I want to use the long version, talking a little about this difference between the studio and doing it live. And I I feel like this long version, which is about a minute extra, you know, it's just that you faded it earlier. So there's more guitar solo. And in fact, kind of an amusing, the drums kind of have a train wreck somewhere toward the end. Like it really gets a little out of control. You know, this is another really fun tune, sort of birdsy guitar Got some big arrangement, you know, on par with the first tune. We got chimes in this one. Can you say a little about a few things before we uh, play it? This was off the Temple Beautiful record, which I wrote with Kurt Lipschutz. And I do remember having these lines like, you know, when the chimes rang out to midnight, you took off your mask to see me cry. And then this. And those are long gaps, you know, between the vocals. And I remember specifically being in the studio making a demo and I told my guitar player, James, I go, when we get to this part, can you like play like a, like a figure? And he goes like, what? And I go like, doo, doo, doo. just like a George Harrison, like, doo, 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 you know, and he came up with that lick. Like, I don't know if I sang it to him or what, but he came up with that lick like immediately. And then it was a song. Yeah, that completely makes could have just gone home then, you know? <laughs> and so I'm really pleased that that part just kind of flew in to save that section. And it really made it so the song's constantly, it's either giving you information through the lyrics or it's giving you pleasure, you know, through the boo, 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 you know, that nice mm-hmm. uh, slide lick that never gets old. And so, you know, it's just constantly left, right left (laughs) and yeah i I was really pleased with that beyond that i don't know what i can tell you about the record do you recall before we hear it the solo that eventually happens and lasts a full two minutes in this version is that you or is that james no that's me like there's a solo in the song that you know you know and then And then the outro is a different chord progression, I think, that's only introduced in the outro. Mm -hmm. And so I started... You know, I started playing over that. There was no planning on that particular take. I, I went for a while to try to, you know, work up a head of steam. And that was the take, and, you know, we just kind of faded it. But another version of it snuck out, and my British manager, Chris Metzler, is like, you got to put that out, you know? <laughs> okay, whatever. When the shots rang out and two men died, you took off your mask just to see me cry.
So you mentioned you've had a couple co-writers on these things. Is that sort of your preferred way of doing these things is now is it like to make it a more social interactive thing rather than like, yeah, that's part of it. I mean, and you know, I mean, Kurt's gifted with words, you know, I'm pretty good with words myself. And I think when we get together, you know, we honor our time together and we are just two people that never seem to run out of things to talk about. So we're pretty lucky in that respect. You know, I wrote songs with him way back in the day. We took about a 10-year break, and we started writing songs again around that record, Temple Beautiful. Um, we were going to write it. We'd written a few songs, and then we wrote some kind of relationship songs. They were starting to pile up, you know. But when I went and made these demos, I think we had, like, Castro Halloween, or we had whatever it is that we had. There were probably a dozen songs. There were probably three that I felt really related to san francisco and that's when i said you know kurt we could drop everything we're doing and we could just make a san francisco record and i think that's something that, that would be a great thing for us to explore and we did and so that was the temple beautiful record and castro halloween is really about the halloween celebration that they used to have about three blocks from our apartment right here and one year somebody brought a gun to the party and kind of spoiled it for everybody but they tried to move it to Civic Center and they tried to, you know, people kept coming. So the Castro Halloween, although 
My wife and I, Stephanie, often will walk down there and kind of get immersed in the celebration. There's been a lot of years as well where we just stay home and we're happy to know that it's there. <laughs> and when I talked to Alejandro Escovedo on this show, we talked about one of the tunes that you wrote with him. Is the co-writing is co-writing is co-writing or is it like, oh, no, no, this is for the Alejandro record and we have to sort of do things in Alejandro mode. But this is the for the Chuck one. Alejandro and I, you know, the first thing we do is we just hang out. We get in a room. We might put on a Montehoople record and just kind of lay down the carpet and take naps, you know, or go shopping or have a long lunch in North Beach, you know. But that's all part of it. And eventually the ideas just kind of emerge. Yeah, if I have a riff or something that sounds like something that I think would be cool, maybe it'll find a home with Alejandro, you know. And, you know, he's he's kind of pointed the way with certain records. He wanted some records to be you know, a little more dancey than other records. Whatever gets him excited, you know. Uh-huh. That, more than anything, really. It sounds like a, a are the ideas coming before you have instruments in front of you? <laughs> like that we're, you know, actually talking about ideas over lunch. We might have a conversation, you know, about somebody like we have a conversation about Iggy. And I do remember saying that Iggy's he's a real animal, you know. Animals do things that are real. They're not self-conscious. And we both agree that Iggy was an animal. <laughs> he was a stage animal in so many ways. And so we wrote that song, Real as an Animal, I believe it's called. I, do, I remember there was like a... Some kind of thing. I was like, well, that, that sounds kind of stooges. And, you know, real as an animal. You know, and I remember writing that song just kind of one part at a time and just pushing it forward. And we threw it in the pile. I didn't know what was going to end up on the record or if, if Alejandro would remain excited about it. But that's generally how it works. Uh, any more thoughts about so Castro Halloween? Clearly, it was played live, but I assume like at least adding the chimes and stuff like there's some sort of dressing after the fact. Yeah, definitely some bells. What are those bells called, Stephanie? The bells that Paul Schaefer played on? Oh, tubular bells, yeah. Yeah, we added some tubular bells. You know, you got to hit the top of the thing with a mallet. It's a little, a little involved. Uh-huh. Yeah, that was probably Brad Jones. Just emphasizing things so that those parts will show, you know? Yes, well, that's the equivalent on Womankind. I mean, was it was an actual timpani on that? No, I'm doing an interview. Yeah, some orchestral things are make for nice overdubs. Beats the hell out of, like, redoing a guitar. The fact that you were able to play this... <laughs> The solo of this right now, so this is still part of the live set? We just rehearsed it last night. Oh, okay. (laughs) As a matter of fact, yeah. We had a rehearsal where I said, this is your chance. If there's anything that's collected dust before we go out, here's a chance to dust it off. So, yeah. So are you trying to recreate? Is there a little, like, are you doing fake tubular bells on the keyboard on this version? Or just forget about that? Stephanie plays great piano, and and I think she does a lot of um, octaves, which some piano players called bells sure sure you know it's covered it doesn't really matter if it's covered and it's not covered that's okay people still hear it in their heads you know sure so i just another thing from the semi-modern period here night surfer 2014 very fun album and this tune in particular is this usually the closer or are there many choices that you have to make hard decisions every night it sits in there like song number three or song number four it can sit in there very nicely in that spot too because I find that that's where people have had an opportunity to get over their initial shyness. And they should be coming forward, you know, if we're doing our job. They're going to be squishing in towards the front. So, you know, Wish Me Luck is definitely a character-driven song. 
I'm not the character in the song, but, you know, I've played it enough times that I've started to relate to the guy who's kind of a blowhard. And it scares me, actually, how much I relate to him. <laughs> I remember that chorus came out of my mouth in one piece, which is, uh, it doesn't happen a lot. And it's, it's fun when it does. Is that a common thing that you feel like that a number of your songs that you're adopting a specific character? It seems like that's not normally your go-to. Oh, yeah. No, it's completely my go-to. Okay, okay. I mean, a friend of mine used to play with a certain songwriter that I'm not going to name, and, and he said, you know, Chuck, he sings about all those family values and everything in his music, but, you know, he's not like that. And I'm like, I know, that's why I like him, you know. <laughs> He's interesting. You know, you get to be the person in the song you want to be. You get to be the lover man. You get to be whoever you want to be. That's the tradition of music. People like Randy Newman have been experts at taking on the voice of people that are not so trustworthy or they're not so likable. And that is also really interesting to me. And I like to do that as well. All right. I guess it was just the three that I happen to pick today that seem to be more like I'm reciting a poem of some sort or, you know, rather than this is a short story that I've written and the character is a sleazebag and I'm talking through his face, you know, that kind of thing. Well, they may be sleazebags, but, you know, <laughs> the trick is to get them on your side. The trick is to get the audience on your side. It seems like this has been pretty sustainable that this constant life of touring, I know this has been super disruptive in the last couple of years. In fact, I thought you were still in California. I, it was only say so well, I'm in California right, oh, right okay. now. Yeah. All right. Yeah. All right. But your bio, at least that I looked at this morning says you got priced out and you moved to New York for the last album. Is that we got priced out of studios and things, you know, and just hotels. And the first go that we had at the record was interrupted. And so I ended up going to upstate New York to record. It was a slower pace. It was less complicated. And it ended up being a cool thing. So now you're re-releasing this album with the additional five tracks. Are these really part of the same album as far as you're concerned? Or are these... Yeah, they really are. We did some more chamber, you know, versions of the songs, took them somewhere else. And there's so much about this record that is still there to discover. And I'm looking forward to going out and playing these songs. Mm -hmm. And so we thought by re-releasing the record with some, to revisit the record really would be great, you know, and I'm certainly not restless. Uh, I'm certainly looking forward to singing these songs. Is the next batch of songs already written underway? You know, I haven't been in a hurry, you know, I mean, uh, the pause button that we all experienced due to COVID, we were pretty locked down here, but it was good for me in many ways. It was good for me to stop. It was a little meditative and probably good, certainly for my marriage. And it wasn't all bad, but it would be nice to get out there and feel useful. And this is what I do. So I'm looking forward to getting out there and doing it. So even though Stephanie tours with you, still having the two of you not doing that thing was good. I think so. You know, I mean, I had a friend early on that came by and he, he left us a camera and a tripod on our porch and we did some recordings and some recorded some stuff and we recorded what became kind of a TV special on stage for the Americana Awards uh, over in the UK. And, and it was interesting because it was kind of like guerrilla self-taught film school. And the tempo slowed way down, and I think it was good. I've been running back, and I've been on the treadmill, you know, just yeah. running from gig to record, from gig to record. I feel so fortunate that I get to do this, and people have responded, not in great numbers, but enough for it to make a little more sense than it used to. 
And I just love it. So as far as addictions go, probably the healthiest one I've had. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for fitting this in. I know we had, you know, were constantly on the road. <laughs> <It was, laughs> I know that we rescheduled this a few times, but I appreciate you hanging in there and I appreciate the persistence. All right. Well, have a great rest of your day. And here is uh, Wish Me Luck. Thank you so much for the attention. This has been fun. Not too much to ask, wish me love. 
Thanks so much to Chuck. You can hear his work at chuckprofit.com. As he mentions at the end, I was actually supposed to talk to Chuck before I talked to his Green on Red bandmates, Dan Stewart and Chris Kakavas. I don't remember if it was supposed to happen before the Alejandro Escoveda one, but he really liked the Alejandro Escoveda one. It's one of the guys he is co-written with. But for whatever reason, we just couldn't get it scheduled. So I was just going back to some of those lost prospects from years ago and was lucky that his promo guy was able to get something on the schedule this time. He's a super fun guy, a sharp writer. I pretty much uniformly enjoy his songs, as did my wife, which is rare. She usually is driven out of the room by the music that I do for the show. I got some more good recordings coming up. Ray Benson, Lily Lewis, James McMurtry. You can get those in the many other interviews I've done in the past at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com or look Nakedly Examined Music up wherever you listen to podcasts. Make sure you're subscribed directly to the NEM feed. And if you don't want to hear me read advertisements anymore, you might want to go to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic for any amount of money contributed per episode. You can get that ad-free feed and... I post my notes for the episode that have the lyrics and my comments on the arrangements. So that's something you can enjoy if you would like. I hope you've all been doing well. Have a great December, great holiday season. Keep on musicking. Until next time, this is Mark Lintonmeyer signing off. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.